on this episode of Comedy Rewind. Is Little Miss Sunshine an underrated gem of the 2000s, or perhaps just underappreciated? How does Steve Carell's casting hold up after the insane success of The Office? Would it have been better, worse, or the same with Bill Murray? All of this and more on Comedy Rewind. 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 Push Rewind. I thought this was a comedy show. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to 8-Bits Comedy Rewind. We're powered by Audio Technica as we rewatch the great comedies of the 1990s and 2000s. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and joining me, Mr. Sunshine himself, Player 2 Deputy Editor Stephen Del Prado. How you doing, Stephen? I'm good. That's good. Doing really well. It's a nice movie to um, you know, get get the uh, get the tap on the shoulder for. Yeah, I, I know because you're a, um, I guess, a film buff and like, a, you know, you teach film and or media or, or whatever the, the class is called. This type of movie I can call on someone like you for a nuanced opinion. It's not like the blockbuster, you know, like Will Ferrell or Ben Stiller movie that people probably associate with the, the 2000s, but it is a, a gem as I look back at a movie like Little Miss Sunshine, I think, and um, probably, it's probably not fair to say underrated because it was so praised, but at the same time, it's probably a forgotten movie in, in some instances so it's probably maybe, underrated in that maybe underappreciated i think when you yeah, look up, like thing. you said you look up the ratings and reviews and this film did gangbusters on launch and i think it's it still holds up pretty well um better than yeah. probably some other films of that time period it's you know your stereotypical fox searchlight sort of indie pick and you know if you look at it in the context of other films around that you know thinking of things like juno and mm-hmm. even something like akin to napoleon dynamite which we'd done before it's you know it's definitely in that wheelhouse yeah it's almost um bordering on the uh i'm having a mind blank who's the life aquatic guy oh where's anderson yeah it's it's like it's that understated type of comedy where it's not like you know if you watched a trailer for this movie you probably wouldn't go that looks hilarious but it's just like the understated like strength of the the script and the dialogue and the scenarios that the characters get put in that actually makes it quite a it is quite a hilarious film yeah it's it's i mean it's it's an hour 45 ish and i was expecting it to drag but it felt kind of tight in a way like Mm. i don't know that there'd be that much you can trim off really um but yeah it's just again i don't know what drew it to me when it you know came out like I probably should have rewatched the trailer to see what was there because I went. I remember seeing it in the cinema. Yeah, and it was very much like I don't think I would have even started film school when this came out. So <laughs> it's very much like just something you know. I guess tweaked the interest at that point to go and see it. Yeah, I mean, if you look back at two thousand and six, it probably you know was. The cast was probably enticing enough to interest a lot of people because obviously Tony Collette had built up somewhat of a re- reputation by then. Certainly not what you know the way we see her now. Uh, Greg Kinnear had had probably uh, probably peaked earlier than this, if I'm being honest. Um, Alan Arkin's a big name, you know, but then you got people like Steve Carell who were relative unknowns when they were probably cast in the film. And then from what I was researching, like became very much a big part of the PR cycle because of the uh, success of the office 
and uh, 40-year-old virgin. So those two things happened kind of after the film had finished shooting, but before it was released. So they really made the most of, of having Steve Carell attached to it. Yeah, it's interesting that I guess people look at it now. If you were to put this out now, you'd probably give Steve Carell top billing and you know, for sure. Tony Collette for potentially sure. and Greg Kinnear, people would say, who's Greg Kinnear? So, <laughs> um, yeah, it is really interesting that it's sort of like they they caught him on the way up and I think it's always interesting when you get to watch a film that does that to an actor who goes on to become so yeah. acclaimed or at the very least sort of explodes into a household name. And I think it's it's not the Steve Carell people would necessarily expect when they go back to watch this film. Yeah, for sure. It's to a smaller degree, like we just did The Hangover and I think it was similar, speaking of The Office, with Ed Helms being such a success in The Hangover that his role on The Office became much more significant and they had to kind of give that character a bit more of a of a part to play. Well, either that or, you know, he's probably going to walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the issue. That's it. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned... The uh, the budget eight million dollars. It made a hundred and one million, which for an indie of that size is just a, a huge success, and obviously won a bunch of awards at um yeah you know independent uh, spirit award and sun uh, Sundance and that kind of thing. So big big hype going into it from that regard. So I guess if you had your ear to the ground about um you know what's getting the buzz, you probably would have heard some things, especially in the lead up to awards season. But um, I don't think I saw this at the cinema. I think it was more of a DVD thing and it might've been like on the back of winning um, some of those Academy Awards and getting nominated for four of them and being a bit of a darling in that sense. And I think the fact that it was, <clears throat> you know, they call, it's, it's labeled as a black comedy or a dark comedy, but it's still fairly wholesome and family friendly for the most part, apart from, you know, there's a little bit of, of swearing and, you know, the porn and the, the drugs theft. and the swearing. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, the theft of a, a, of a dead body, but um, there's nothing like graphic or terribly untoward happening in this movie. And I think part of that reason is you have Abigail Breslin as like one of the main characters. It would feel unnerving to have a child in the spot of um, <laughs> well, I think of, of it, that, it, that kind of stuff going on. It just shows sort of them juggling everything around her to try to keep her from a lot of it, which was apparently yeah. mirrored in the um, production anyway. Like they had music pumping through her headphones in a lot of the mm-hmm. scenes so she couldn't hear the other dialogue. And apparently the first time she heard a lot of it was at, you know, the screening. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And speaking of like the the rising stars, like Paul, da- is it pronounced Dano or Dano? With uh, I have I I don't know Paul Dano or Dano. Let's go. We're Aussies, so we'll just go Dano. Dano, and, uh, and hope that that's what it is. Or Dano, yeah. Um, Dano. So good on you, Dano. <laughs> um, yeah, like another guy who I had definitely never heard of him when this movie came out, but watching well, it now he, on the back of you know much? the Batman. Oh yes, absolutely, it's, and it's like oh, whoa, this guy. And he's obviously got with the, you know, everything everywhere all at once doing gangbusters as an indie film out at the moment, him being in Swiss Army Man, the mm-hmm. previous film from uh, Daniels. So 
this was the first time I saw him as well, and it's pretty interesting. I I didn't realize until I was looking at um stuff for this episode that he was actually twenty one when they shot this. I assumed he was younger. Yeah, he definitely has the look of a um two thousands teenager, which we'll get to in one of the later <laughs> categories. But I'm looking at just his IMDb, and he was in like The Girl Next Door in two thousand four, uh, a few other movies here and there, and Fast Food Nation, which came out the same year as Little Miss Sunshine. So getting a bit of work. He had a, a role, two episodes on The Sopranos between 2002 and 2004. Um, so I guess we could call him a child actor in that sense. He was probably late teens before he started mm. to to get those roles. But um, yeah, so yeah, as I said, my experiences was very much like the DVD kind of thing. And then I, I'm pretty sure I've never seen this again between... 2006 and last week so it was great to go back with basically fresh you know fresh eyes and take it all in for a second time um is it something that you've watched repeatedly over the years no i again it's i think it's it's interesting that it's it's such a unique film and it has a few of those standout moments most notably sort of the the end sequence that i think i was surprised how much of it i remembered like I hadn't really forgotten much of it. And I don't know that there's been much that sort of exists in the same space as this to a degree. Like, that sort of... It's such a weird blend of things. It's this family drama. It's a it's a road trip movie. It's mm-hmm. all of these very odd elements that are pretty low-key in a lot of ways. And I think it's just all sort of comes together like it's it's the script and it's the casting and it's the directing and everything makes it, I think, a lot better than it would be otherwise. Because I think you could have miscast this movie and none of it would work. And I think parts of the script could have been changed and it wouldn't work. Yeah. Yeah, there's a really interesting family dynamic happening throughout this movie. The character, like the, the movie starts off and you're like, this family's terrible. Like they're all like, apart from the child, you're all, you're just like, what's going on here? No one's on the same page as each other. They're They're just like, yeah, it's, it is a mess. And then, you know, they kind of unite under the, um, the, the goal of supporting, uh, young Olive. And that's what brings them together in the end as well, which is a great kind of, um, full circle kind of thing, which I think, again, we'll get to that a bit later, but I mean, yeah, just before we get really into it, it's definitely um, definitely a movie that deserves the shine that's attached, for lack of a better word, I guess pun intended, the, the shine that's attached to it, the name of, of a, a film like this. So as mentioned, critically acclaimed, but uh, what do you reckon the Rotten Tomato score is sitting at, if you don't already um, know? I can't lie, I already, I, oh, <laughs> I've already cute. seen it. It was, well, here's the thing. I'll, if I'm, uh, I was going in my, my, my general guess for Rotten Tomatoes scores is 86%. I'm, I always go in and I'm like, oh, it's probably like 86%. Oh, yeah. And I was very surprised to see this sitting at 91%. Yeah. That was, um. Yeah. I mean, I would probably guess around, yeah, 90, I think just because of, you know, it's so inoffensive and like feel good. I think yeah. that it, it just works. I mean, I did pull some of the reviews to, um talk a little bit about what critics liked and didn't like uh so here's one from a, a outlet called outlook 
that says the best thing about American cinema is that besides the studio assembled big ticket movies, there's also the flourishing indie film movement, which keeps throwing up some delightfully refreshing movies. And that's a nice way to put this because it would have been very different to a lot of other films that were going on. Like you mentioned Juno, that was the next year that that came out. And, um, Napoleon Dynamite was a, a couple of years earlier, but it's a completely different vibe and it's not really grounded in the same kind of reality um, that this is for sure. Like this feels like it could be, you know, any family that you live on the same block as like any dysfunctional family. And I really like that. Yeah, it definitely has sort of, you know, characters that you you don't recognise from necessarily films that you've watched. You recognise them from, you know, closer to reality. Yeah, They're not these larger-than-life characters. They're all these, you know, really flawed individuals. Yeah, and there's another review that says it doesn't exploit its characters for comedy or life lessons. It simply embraces the family members and lets them be themselves I, I can imagine like the you know the writers of this film just really going to town on evolve like developing and evolving those characters um in in the writing process and just by defining who the characters are like the rest of the story kind of writes itself as they go on this road trip and they work through their failings or their successes or whatever it might be mostly failings um <laughs> the the negative review that I'll read just because I disagree with it comes from Orlando Sentinel. It says, sunny or dark comedy should never be as predictable as Little Miss Sunshine. And that's one that I, I definitely take issue with because I feel like m- maybe some of the joke setups are predictable, but the story that takes place in this film isn't something that I would have described that way. Like I never would have said that I expected the grandfather to perish on this journey or that um you know the the teenage kid taking a vow of silence would find out that he's colorblind and it would throw his whole life goal you know upside down like i feel like they did a great job of keeping the dynamic of that group shifting by introducing these unexpected things but um the audience kind of guessing as far as what could possibly happen next yeah, that seems a little odd to me. Um, again, I can't always agree with a lot of critics. Sometimes they seem to deviate from what it is they want to get out of cinema compared to myself occasionally. Mm. Um, I think that at least one of the strengths of this film is that you do get the genuine sense that even under everything, these characters do genuinely care about each other and they just don't necessarily mm-hmm. know how to show it. Yeah, they all have their own flaws that are getting in the way, whether it's, you know, the father that's obsessed with, you know, winning is like the number one thing or the mother that's not quite sure how to relate to her kids because they're just different from her. You've got the grandfather that's kind of hard to describe. I guess he's, he's a little bit bitter about life, but also he's one of those old people that you just can't, expect to tone down anything they just have no filter and then you've got surly yeah and then you've got steve carell's character who's completely depressed and doing his best with that situation that he's in but um it it certainly takes its toll on 
on how he interacts with people. Okay, so the number one song when this movie released, this one, this is one that you will have to guess. <laughs> oh my lord, two thousand and six. I I have no idea. It sounds like it was some flash in the pan thing. If it's if it's that tricky. Yeah, I think that it. You could probably describe it that way. It came up a few episodes ago. It was uh, "I Wish I Was a Punk Rocker with Flowers in My Hair." Sandy oh Tom. yes, by yep. Yep. Yeah, she had yeah. so many hits after that. How do I know? <laughs> <laughs> and just before her, it was Justin Timberlake with Sexy Back. Just See, after her. That's just better. after her, it was U2 and Green Day with their collaboration, The Saints Are Coming. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, she did have like nine weeks at number one somehow. Yeah, that's so, so weird. 2006, what a time, hey? Like, Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Nine <laughs> weeks for that song. Good job, Australia. Okay. <laughs> what have you done for me lately? Abigail Breslin, uh, very, very young when this movie was made, but has recently done a film called Stillwater, which is a Matt Damon movie that I don't know. Heard she of, something haven't called, watched. Yeah. <laughs> she said something called The Cannibals 2, which sounds like a horror movie, but I think it's like a comedy horror. And then oh, yeah. Zombieland that- 2, which again... That's not quite as recent as the others, but probably the most well-known thing that people would remember yeah. her for in the recent years. Zombieland and Zombieland 2, I'd say, are what people mostly go to for Abigail Breslin. I I kind of feel for her, in a way, with um, some of the awards that this film got. I don't know if you want to talk about it now or you want to save it for a little bit later. Um, no, let's, let's, let's spoil it now. Go for well, it. Best Supporting Actress Oscar um, was... Obviously, I feel bad because on re-watching this, I'm like, I think what it is is that she's good for a child actor because so often child actors are atrocious. So many of them are drama and theatre trained and they're so big on camera and they cannot rein it in. And I think she manages to come across really naturally. And on reflection, like, she does have a few big moments in there, but... The duties are pretty evenly divided amongst the rest of the cast. So I honestly could have seen almost any of them getting the nod for this award. So I wonder if that didn't have some sort of, you know, uh, repercussions for her going forward. That it's like, well, you've won, you know, an Oscar (laughs) at what, like seven years old or something, was it? By the time I don't think um, she won. It looks like it was Alan Arkin that won. And then, yeah, she must have been nominated. Oh, so they were up against each other. Well, and that's interesting. It's like you get the Best Supporting Actress nom at that age. And then it's a bit like Hayley Steinfeld. Like, I feel that their careers mirror one another a little bit. And they have this very sort of precocious role. Hayley Steinfeld was robbed that year, by the way. Um, But, and then it's (laughs) sort of what they go on to do is not necessarily what you'd think they would go and do. Like, to go and do things like Pitch Perfect and stuff like that with Hayley Steinfeld and Abigail Breslin going in to do stuff like Zombieland and you wonder why they weren't getting mined for, you know, oh, well, look, we can get some, you know, throw her name on the cover. Best Supporting Actress mm. nominee, Abigail Breslin, in this drama film. Yeah, she did She did do that film with Arnie, the, the Maggie, like The Last of Us kind of vibes uh, zombie movie, which... I did not see that. Yeah, me neither. Um, interesting. With, Arnett, with but, Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah. Yeah, that was his, yeah. like, big, like, I'm not the governor anymore. I'm going to do a serious movie. 
oh, movie. Okay. Well, um, yeah, sad. Yeah. Sad. I missed that. <laughs> yeah, it's never too late to go back and check it out. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, at least they're they're both doing better than Haley Joel Osment, who was in that similar kind of boat as the child actor. Yeah, getting, the precocious, bumped up there. very yeah. early noms and wins, and then you're in Tusk, mate. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yep, so I guess she's, yeah, known for this as well as the Zombieland movies, you could be safe to say. Uh, Alan Arkin is still working, bless him. He must be in his 80s now, and he has a voice role in The Rise of grew which you know it's a despicables me spin-off also featuring steve carell who most recently has been seen in space force season two on netflix um the morning show or morning wars depending on which part of the world you live in on apple tv plus and the despicable me four film that's coming out in two years but uh that's I guess in post production. So, did not know there were going to be four of those things, but um, no, I I did not either. My son mess, will be very excited. Can't mess with a good thing, I guess. Greg Kinnear is a guy that uh, we mentioned before as I guess someone who probably peaked sooner than uh, than this film. But I love Greg Kinnear, and I think that he's always always quite good and and worth watching. He's recently done something called Shining Veil, which is a series with Courtney Cox. Is that one familiar to you at all? I have not seen that. Greg Greg Kinnear is one of those actors for me where uh, I I don't follow him, but every time I see him in something, I know I'm probably in for a a decent ride. Um, Most notably in this film, because he is fantastic as Richard. Like he, you just detest him through so much of the film and he does such a great job at writing that line yeah like you as the audience are rolling your eyes at him along with half of his family definitely and then he kind of just redeems himself at the 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 last part of the film where you can see the wheels turning in his head as, as that character going uh maybe it's not a good thing if my daughter wins this competition because this feels uh, off well (laughs) <laughs> and also him sort of redefining like his very sort of like these are what winners are and these are what losers are and you're one yeah. or the other. And, you know, I guess him having that realisation that, well, by my own <laughs> by my own uh, criteria, I myself am a loser. So maybe I need to uh, <laughs> maybe to rethink this. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And uh, shout out to Mystery Men where Captain Amazing... Uh, is the role of Greg Kinnear's career, in my opinion. <laughs> Paul Dano, we mentioned the Batman and uh, his his turn there as Riddler. So I don't know if it's just that I'm paying attention now, but it seems like he's certainly getting um, some good roles. It's been, you know, almost 20 years since this, but he's, um, you know, earned himself a lot of respect over that time. He's consistent, Dano. He's a he's a good bloke. Um, On your Dano, <laughs> yeah. The, obviously, the Riddler um, is it's it's very interesting because I I wonder if that's going to lead to some sort of a resurgence for him. Because I again I feel like he's flown under the radar a little bit. He's you know hasn't done anything huge. Like 
more indie films and stuff that maybe a lot of people haven't seen. But to um obviously be in something like that film and, you know, it obviously hints at the character maybe even returning, then it could be that um, Dano gets uh, another day in the sun. Mm, absolutely. Okay. Shine. Mi- Little Miss. <laughs> Sunshine. Oh, <laughs> moving into the categories. What is the most 2000s moment of Little Miss Sunshine? I wanted to just give a quick shout out to uh, Dano and his whole vibe like as a character. Oh, yeah. With the presumably dyed black hair, um, it's very emo. It's very like I'm not really sure what um, like yeah, subculture I... I fit into. So I'm just gonna try out a bunch of things. It's got like the the slicked cross fringe and the belt. I, I definitely noticed the belt, oh, yes. which was one of the like. He had it tucked all the way through the loopholes, but it's the type that we used to just like let hang down at the front. Yeah. You're very much making a statement with that belt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he had it, yeah, he did have it tucked all the way around, which isn't the cool way to wear the belt, but um, no. maybe it, maybe in hindsight it was cooler <laughs> than the way that me and my friends used to wear them. Um, it could so be just him was... like not following the crowd. He's like, I'm not, not going to do that. That's yeah. beneath me. Yeah. So that was, that was something that, you know, seeing his bedroom and the way that he dressed and just his general teenage angst. I was like, maybe because I was a similar age. I was like, yeah, this is this takes me back to the 2000s for sure. Um, anything that jumps out at you? Um, there's two main things. Uh, Greg Kinnear's phone and Abigail Breslin's uh, CD Walkman were the two things that um sort of really drove home that this yeah. movie is very much in that space. Yeah. So to elaborate on that, we had this phone that, this mobile phone that he had attached to his belt with yep. the old holster. Yeah, the little zip cable thing, and it's got the um, it's the flip phone with probably a, a you know, it looks like they're trying to play it off as you know they're pretty broke, so it wasn't even like because in two thousand six we had yeah. color screen phones, we had all of that stuff, but this thing is very much like bargain basement. And, you know, to still be rocking a CD Walkman in 2006, it was getting pretty long in the tooth at that point. You know, MP3 players were a thing. Yeah, they were. Um, I definitely had a um, iPod by that point, but I did rock the MP3 Discman for a bit longer. The the MP3 Discman was, you know, the bomb. I was. I remember having it, and I was like, "The art," because my, my brother had the first generation iPod, and I was like, "It's so clumsy." You know, you got to like flick through all the like. It takes forever to scroll to the song you want to listen to, and there was no. I don't think there was like a easy search function. Even just doing the search took ages to get to all the letters. It's like worse. <laughs> it's like worse than the PS4 like PlayStation Store. Yeah. Um, which was pretty bad. Uh, but yeah, I was definitely wrong. I'll admit that. The other 2000s technology were the answering machine they had at the start, like their, at their home, like the home answering oh, yeah. machine as they get the, the message about the contest. And it starts with her watching the... Um, Miss America on a very large, but still very square 
Is it still a CRT? I think it was like a flat screen, but not 16 by 9, like the, the 4 by 3 still. Oh, like the old plasma ones they used to have or something, yeah, something like, like a like, projection looks, or something like that? Yeah, it reminded me of that kind of, of thing. Maybe I didn't get a good enough look at it. It could have been CRT, but it was very large. Like it was a mm. big screen square TV. Um, and I remember like some friends who were pretty well off having a really nice big square TV in the early 2000s and thinking like, this is pretty cool. But that era did not last no. more than the decade. Thankfully. Back, back then when you'd be like, wow, 40 inches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the last thing I wanted to throw out is the um, adult magazines that were purchased at the uh, petrol station. Oh, yes. Jugs the, is the only one. Yeah. And, and oh, a buns and ammo. Um, buns, I cannot, yeah. I cannot remember the other two. Yeah. That whole thing is, and like the, the kind of like shame of him, like buying the, the gay one and, and kind of sandwiching it between the two others. It's like, obviously pre internet adult materials and, uh, other types of adult materials that are very accessible, in modern day, but you wouldn't have to risk the embarrassment of going into a brick and mortar store to, um, to acquire such materials. I would almost guarantee those materials are still readily available at 99% of truck stops. They, you do tend to see them, but I guess it's more of a, um, it feels like a relic, but it's yes. And, and it's not like this is my only option. It's, it's, it's a choice. That I, That's a conscious yeah, a choice, choice that people are making now. They're analog. Yeah. They're very particular about the way they consume their material. Yeah, they, they want a full A4 size, not yeah, like... I need the you know, A3, those... that double page. Like <laughs> That's it. That's it. Okay, so from there, we'll move on to the most iconic scene. And there were a few... Like, you mentioned how there weren't a lot of super memorable things that stuck out in the time between like your first viewing and your most recent viewing. And I was the same. There was a couple of things that I did remember and that the image that was burned in my head was um, when Dwayne finds out that he's colorblind and has that mm. big freak out and they have to pull over the van and he's like down the ditch essentially. And, and that like visual of the distance between them and the uh, the van against the horizon or the sky was the the thing that stuck in my head over the years. So for me, like that is the one, the first one that I think of for most iconic scene. Is there something that that stands out for you? Uh, that was there's two of them, and that that is one of them. So there's a you know Dano in the ditch, and <laughs> then obviously the uh, the finale scene with um Olive dancing and obviously that's a, a very a very a very lengthy payoff um after you know realizing you know of course that's what the grandpa <laughs> taught her <laughs> like it all makes so much sense and i think uh, perhaps that's what mr negativity review was um yeah. thinking about the whole time whereas obviously i don't tend to hyperanalyze films um, when I first watched them a lot of the time, and I especially didn't back at this point because it was very much pre having done much yeah. film study. But yeah, it's um, 
those are the two main scenes and i i think that is um yeah even my wife who had not seen it um probably since it came out either the the dano scene um finding out that he's colorblind is one that she still remembers from the film right it's a it's a very um it's it's such a great performance from dano as well like he doesn't say anything up until this point in the film. And I think that juxtaposition is really what yeah. drives it home. Like he's so chill the whole time and almost like he's trying to act like he doesn't, it's very, it's very emo. He doesn't care about anything. Like I just hate everything and I don't yeah. care. And he doesn't even say that to you. It's just his facial expressions and his notepad and just is very much like his squinty eyes. And he's like, sort of like, I guess like very sort of, <laughs> mm, like awkward his, movements. Yeah. Like he's very his reluctant. His body language is it's, his body language is the equivalent of mom. Like yeah, I, it's like the, do I have oh, to? Like <laughs> like his neck is doing a lot of work throughout yeah. this. And it's a good it's a good silent performance as far as silent performances go. Yeah, and it and it just leads to that sort of payoff when it it's like he flicks a switch and he just starts smashing into the van door. Yeah. And I guess the whole, <laughs> the way the whole scene is edited and um, framed is very much sort of, you know, it gives you that sense of panic. Is he's just going to hurl himself out of the van? Like, and I think that's sort of the vibe they were going for. Yeah. And there's a great decision. I don't know if it was like a direction from the director or just Greg Kidney's decision, but he keeps looking at the roof in that scene, like as he's driving. <laughs> It's like he he doesn't quite follow what's happening behind him, and whenever <laughs> whenever Dano bangs on the side of the the van, he just looks up at the roof like, "What's up there? Like, what is making that noise?" <laughs> and it kept cracking me up um, in what's a pretty serious uh, scene. But yeah, that that's um that the dialogue when he's screaming at his family members is bringing out all of these flaws that have been there but no one's really acknowledged mm. through the film so it kind of makes everyone confront it take you know it, it addresses the elephants multiple elephants in the room i guess and almost allows some healing to take place from then on i guess and it sort of ties in thematically like him screaming at them that they're all losers and the reason that in his mind they're losers and that you know it's you know it probably ties into the Greg Kinnear character most of all with his whole nine steps and you're a winner or you're a loser and you know your stepson basically thinks you're a loser because you your whole thing has failed <laughs> like of course you're a loser right and i think you know again the fact that abigail breslin i think does a great job in that particular moment and it ties into the you know slightly earlier moment in the hospital there's like a lot of there's payoff there like yeah. her in the hospital saying oh you know do you want to do you want to um take an eye test and then him writing her the note to you know go and go and hug mum, and it sort of you know mirrors itself in a way during that later scene when the only one who can sort of bring him back from the brink is olive Definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, for all the like dysfunction and the road trip uh, antics and hijinks, there's a lot of heart 
throughout this film, which I think makes it work. Like it just has these these moments, whether it's, um, you know, that scene there or the, the scene between Steve Carell's character and Dano's character on the jetty mm. during the, um, you know, the, the, the last section of the, the pageant movie. Uh, the pageant part of the movie. So yeah, there's a lot of these understated lines or moments, whether it's, you know, the hug or the, you know, little, little one-on-one conversations that bring that authenticity back to it. I think amongst the, you know, we've got a dead body in the car and we can't, we can't stop our van. Yeah, the, so we're going to drive around. It's like yeah, we're, the we're compounding maniacs. absurdities that are yeah. making their journey more and more difficult what was already a difficult journey has become more difficult yeah. in the undertaking of it <laughs> sure so some of the other scenes that i just wanted to mention were the dinner table or i guess yeah dinner table scene where they're talking about uh frank's suicide story so steve Carell's mm. character and um you know the innocence of 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 uh, olive asking why he would hurt himself and uh, Greg Kinnear's character's complete discomfort with it, talking about that kind of thing in front of a child. You know, you've got the mother there who's trying to be the like the, almost the cool parent who's open and honest and like the, the yeah, new age and, kind of mom. Yeah, yeah, and he's there saying, "Oh, you know, your uncle did that because he's a loser and has mental issues and all these other like just very much his <laughs> like weird framing of the entire world." until that starts to unravel for him and he i guess it's for sure i guess that's one of the things like that i think like duality runs through so many parts of this film you know the grandfather can be a great grandfather but he also got kicked out of an old folks home for being a heroin addict (laughs) and you know paul dano and he's he's also silently he's silent like not so silently judging um frank's character for his depression or for his sexuality or whatever yeah and it's and obviously Greg Kinnear's character is sort of judging everybody and then having to confront the idea that, you know, maybe, maybe you can be a winner and a loser at the same time. And uh-huh. to people who look at you like you're a loser, do they matter if the people you actually care about look at you like you're a winner? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, the other things I wanted to mention, uh, <laughs> The scene you mentioned you mentioned earlier, where Olive has the headphones on in the car, and Alan Arkins as the grandfather is just like saying the most obscene things, telling Dano to you know sleep with as many women as he can, and how are you not already, um, you know, yeah, what are you fifteen? What are you? Yeah, <laughs> and he says like, I I had second degree burns on my Johnson, like that line cracked me up. Um, yeah, in the was, old days, so yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, the pageant you mentioned uh, as the big kind of... Anytime there's a musical number in a film, I, I feel like it tends to be one of the... It just jumps up the list of being memorable. Um, it's a... Oh, you know, it's the, it's, it's the DreamWorks go-to to finish a film off. You have the big dance sequence, so... I mean, we did Napoleon Dynamite. We did um, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. That These movies, you got to have a big musical number. How are you going to wrap it up with a big musical number? Exactly. (laughs) And I think that is is another scene that really looks at sort of the duality of it. Like, what is is really perverse? Is it every other aspect of these child beauty pageants? 
or is it the fact that Olive is dancing suggestively to Rick James's super freak in what is by all, like I would say a pretty chast costume for that sort of number anyway compared to some of the things that the other girls are being dressed up yeah. and I think that's like an interesting sort of again another like juxtaposition between well what is really perverse about this apart from the dude in the audience who's clearly a <laughs> yeah that's a good point because I, I said the same thing to my wife which was like the way that everyone's reacting to this as if it's like shocking and so over the top I was surprised they weren't almost just like on board with it because other elements of those performances are you know over sexualized for what is a, a child's competition and completely unnecessary um you know for lack of a better term like um, well there probably is a better term it's not coming to mind but that the adultification of children that shouldn't be viewed in that in that way yeah yeah it's it's it and i it's very interesting all around. And obviously their, their choice to have Abigail Breslin wear, you know, a suit to make her slightly larger throughout the film as well uh-huh. to sort of pad her out, to sort of emphasize the fact that, you know, she doesn't fit the stereotypical body type of those events as well. Yeah, for sure. The, the scene when she talks to the, the Miss America and yeah, says, and- do you like ice cream? Like that was so good and such a great payoff from something way earlier in the film too it's, it's just very funny and clever and heartwarming too because you, you see like her almost like her dream was ru- like ruined by the earlier scene when she realized wait if i want to be successful it means i can't do the things that i love like eat ice cream yeah and then we and of we course get- that whole scene is everyone <laughs> like trying to eye kill Greg Kinnear's character, like just staring daggers at him the whole time. It's just like, you know, you're going a bit far with this, mate. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just such a great payoff to see that hope or, you know, trust in humanity restored to her as she realizes that I can eat ice cream again. Like I don't have to quit ice cream. Yeah, and I wonder if it was direction. Story. Wonder if it was direction given to the actress who played Miss America. Because um, I know they didn't use a real Miss America because um, just a production issues and things like that making it probably. difficult. Yeah. Well, potentially. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but like her being so animated during Olive's performance and like getting right into it. While um, the I don't know the actress's name, but to me she's always Kitty from Donnie Darko as yeah. the the evil judge they're like just losing her mind while the Miss America character is like right into it. Like, yes, like it's, I think that's a great element of that scene as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's, that's probably everything I had listed down for, um, for most iconic scene. Did you have anything else you wanted to throw out there? In terms of scenes or just in general? Uh, most iconic moments or just, um, things that that's that stood out that you wanted to mention i i do think another scene that like is probably helped her get the nod is the scene in the hotel between um abigail breslin and alan arkin like their little heart to heart sure before he goes in the bathroom and dies of a drug overdose um that was quite well (laughs) done i thought yeah and 
you don't realize the significance of it until later because no like i said before i did not expect even rewatching this i forgot that he dies and i was completely surprised to, to see that happen and i think that scene subverts expectations in a way because it's very much olive wanting to be told she's pretty and beautiful not wanting to be told she's smart and has a great personality and all these other things she wants to be told that she is beautiful and obviously alan arkin's character very much leans into that Okay, so what holds up the best for you? Or like everything, like this. I think it's the storyline and the performances. I think are the two things that really carry it still to this day. I think it was great that they were able to catch Steve Carell at that point in his career, and great that they were able to find Abigail Breslin, because I think that would have been a very difficult role to cast. Um, Tony Collette as well, I think, is a little underutilized. I would have liked to see her get a little bit more to do in this film as well. Um, I think obviously with the focus on, you know, all of those characters is a little bit hard to juggle every single one of them and give them as much material as I would have liked. <laughs> it's a, it's a thing where they're all in the movie the whole time, but there's only so much you can give them as far as moments to shine, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with what you say, like the young cast, I think holds up really well as far as people who hadn't quite hit their stride yet. Dano, Abigail, Steve Carell. Um, they've all gone on to have, I'd say, pretty good careers. And that's a credit to the casting team. The script, the performances in general, like anyone, like if you heard that anyone of that family had been nominated for some type of award for this it wouldn't be surprising because they each do what they're setting out to do so well like even greg kinnear like his his performance is really great and he has less dramatic work probably but the comedic stuff is yeah it would be a tough line yeah, it's not even it, comedic not stuff. It's like it it's yeah, and it's like it's the cringy stuff as well. Like he seems like even when he's telling her, you know, you can't eat ice cream if you want to look like Miss America, he's still doing it from a good place because he, yeah, his intentions are good, but it's also like yeah, and the way like it's very much infantilizing her as well, and sort of you know the way he speaks to her is. I think a great choice. One of, one of like the weird tiny moments that I really like is at the very start of the film. And it's literally just the way Tony Collette slams the box of ice creams down on the table after dinner. Like that's dessert. And then instantly just grabs it back, rips it open and starts scarfing one of them down. And <laughs> like just that like whole choice and her performance of that. And then it's sort of her like, trying to get this ice cream and you know it's it's like a little bit too cold and just her chattering teeth on it and just everything about that is like wonderful yeah okay so i think we just we've already said a lot of great things about the movie in general so can probably just agree that the film as a whole holds up pretty damn good what holds up the worst because there's not much here really like there's some i guess casual homophobia towards Steve Carell's character, but it's nothing that's like, 
it's almost like it's um the the grandpa who's clearly out of touch that's showing that uh i guess that's um and it's yeah it's not even like he's he's directly related because you know it's tony collette's brother so it's you know Uh his son's brother-in-law like you know there's not as much of a direct connection there and i think that would maybe be it but i think it's also i think it's necessary for the story and to sort of ground it a little bit um for that time period that i think people tend to forget how much has changed for lgbtqia plus people in such uh-huh. a short amount of time and to even look at something that's just over 15 years old and see that one the casting would be problematic and we'd now say that steve carell should not be playing the role of a homosexual man that should have gone to a legitimate homosexual man um which is a controversial topic in and of itself in terms of you know how closely does an actor have to be to the character that they are playing in order to play that role effectively because it's called acting for a reason um but yeah also... there would be someone that's there would be someone that says he shouldn't do it yes i don't think it would change i don't think that hollywood has reached the point where they feel that pressure is no, justified not, yet not just yet um and i think that's probably and I think it's dangerous to erase that sort of stuff because then you forget, oh, yes, that's what it was like. Like, people were just casually awful to homosexual people, you know, to LGBT well, even people his, at that yeah, point. Yeah, and even his own embarrassment in the magazines that he has to sandwich them around, not like a motoring magazine and PC gamer, like his <laughs> other types of adult magazines. I think that works beautifully in that acceptable. scene as well, because obviously it's, you know, the, the, the spurned lover, uh, it, like the role that he's playing in that scene, you know, it's sort of, I think it, you get the impression that, you know, the person who's in love with that's left him for this other person glances, you know, the heterosexual pornographic material on the counter and is like, whoa, like he's really hit rock bottom. Like what is going on? Like how... How much did I mess you up? Oh, there's a lot of great uses for that because it comes back into the fold with the police. Oh, with the, yeah, with the cop over. and all of that yeah. sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's playing with a lot of those sorts of ideas around, I guess, that material in a way. But I think that would probably be the most problematic thing for a lot of audiences would be sort of what could be perceived as, yeah, the casual homophobia portrayed by some of the characters and the dismissiveness of mental health issues. Yeah, that's probably even more striking. Is not. It's almost like, um, I guess, Olive is very quick to accept. First of all, she's like, "What? It's a. It's you fell in love with a boy," and then from there on, she's just like, "Okay." Like she's just like accepts it. Doesn't. Yeah, I question get it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then yeah, it's more like the handling of. Um, depression and um well, suicidal feeling every like... single member of this family needs therapy that's pretty obvious yeah <laughs> but they're also like oh my god i can't believe you would do that but also none of us are going to go and talk to anyone about our problems <laughs> yeah and like let's stick him with our teenage son and then we won't let him stay alone with anyone and 
there's like kid gloves on him from that point on. It's it's um I get I get like there's a sense of of caring for someone and a duty of care, but it's it comes across more like patronizing than anything. Uh, anything else holding up poorly? I mean, they, they do steal a dead body. I'm not sure how that would fly um, at any was, point. I don't know if that was ever in good taste. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I imagine that they would probably go to meth as the drug that he's on now as opposed to heroin. I think that would be mm-hmm. more shorthand, but obviously not necessarily have the intended effect. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, is there anything, you know, like the next question is who would be most offended? Do you think that there's anything in this film that is truly offensive in uh, 2022? Or Unironic child beauty pageant fans? Mm. Yeah, there is, a, there is a basically pedophile, I guess you could say, in the, I think in the it's, audience. It's funny, isn't it? It's so, like they ride the line of, is this dude just like literally enthusiastic about this or is he like, it's... Are they playing with stereotypes that you look at him? You're like, well, of course he's that. And I think it's, I think it's cleverly done in that way that it's not right. as overt as it could be. But they they're definitely playing with the idea that that whole thing is gross. Like you've got the the guy that signs them in late, and he's like, I'm never working for these people again. Like, yeah. and just you know, obviously, like you mentioned, the the key scene out on the pier with um Steve Carell and Dano. And them just sort of commiserating over how messed up the whole child pageant <laughs> thing is and how exploitative it is to a lot of these children. And yeah, just questioning what is the end goal and purpose for all of this. Mm. Yeah. And then like the dad character, I'm not quite sure. Did he go in there and tell her she doesn't have to go through with it because he was fearful that she would lose or because he was finding it? untasteful or i i i get the impression it's a little bit both but i think it's literally him being afraid of her losing and i think there's 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 something in there i think it's a line that the grandfather says where he basically you know says that it's something on the lines of and i think he says it to his son that you know the only real loser is the person who's too afraid to try so they never lose in the first place like yeah right and i and i think it's him trying to rob her of that agency like if he prevents her from going up she won't fail but she also never has the chance to win hmm. yeah I th- I, I, we've gone a bit off the <laughs> topic of who would be most <laughs> offended but it is it's it's a there's you know there's layers to this film it's there's a lot that you can that you can talk about like we we went into that under most iconic scene and even still it's it's making me think about like how how great it is as that moment like that full circle moment of everyone jumping up there and basically humiliating themselves to dance alongside the you know their it's, sister or daughter um, again, or niece I, to it's, to it's a support family her, that yeah. doesn't know how to express to one another that they love each other and th- this is, uh, I I think for Greg's Kinnear's character, it's it's where he realizes that he needs to support his daughter, and not 
necessarily protect her from these people because as long as she has the rest of her family to love and support her, that is all the protection she really needs because she can deal with failure if she has them behind her. Yeah. No, it's good. Okay. Uh, does Little Miss Sunshine pass the internet relevancy test via memes mm. and gifs? I'm going to say probably not. It's not like a iconic film in that sense. You know, it's not like a Tropic Thunder or an Anchorman or, or that kind of thing. It's the indie comedy that could. Um, so, yeah, I can't think of any images that I've seen used in that way. No, I've, it's, I don't think it's really taken off at that point. I think it's probably a little bit too early. And I don't know if it's ever had a resurgence no. to have that sort of thing happen to it either. The only thing and I can think of maybe ty- it's working... Not the, it's not the kind of thing that's like super quotable either. Like I can't think of any lines from the film apart from like some simple ones, you know. Yeah, and it, I, I think the main one would be Paul Dano tearing out of the truck screaming Fuck, to the sky <laughs> like that, <laughs> that would probably be about it is you know you could maybe get a nice gif out of that or something but um the next question is how would modern smartphones and social media change this movie i think you'd have dano on his phone constantly um in sitting in that car wishing he wasn't there maybe talking to his friends or scrolling twitter Maybe I think he'd be too cool for social media. I think it would be they would make the character sort of be rebelling. He would be rolling around with like a like an old school phone to impress that he's you know not shallow <laughs> enough to fall for that sort of you know modern teen you know garbage. Because especially that later scene where he said you know I wish I could just sleep and wake up at eighteen. Like he hates being a teenager. Yeah, and I think he would try to get away from what he would perceive as a key component of that experience in social media in the modern day. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Um, maybe he'd be listening to an audio book on his <laughs> iPhone <laughs> yeah. or something instead. A podcast, um, some sort of yeah, you know, <laughs> philosophical but podcast. Otherwise, I'm not sure that there'd be anything super different. Maybe, uh, maybe somebody's filming the the, the dance at the end maybe it goes viral and she you know she doesn't win the contest but she becomes famous she wins the hearts of america way. yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah she gets she gets to go on ellen because uh, everybody doing. saw her dancing to super freak um could you make this movie today what would the 2022 version be i feel like today this is probably like a netflix movie because of the budget yeah. what do you think yeah, I think it'd be something like that. I don't... It's definitely not in the, like, the current indie cinema wheelhouse. I don't think it's... Very much feels more like a straight-to-streaming kind of movie. In terms of who would they cast in it, that's a much more difficult question to answer. Um, yeah. I don't know. I haven't got any ideas. It, like, it's always, you know... Especially if they're going to cast some of the more unknown people. Yeah. Like, what it was at the time it might be you know yeah some sort of you know netflix stable of actors that they use on the reg but yeah i I think you're right i definitely think it'd be more of a streaming film than something that would be coming out to the cinema these days 
I could see it being like an Amazon Prime movie, actually, mm. for some reason. All right, it is time for the Steve Buscemi Spark Plug Award. Steve Buscemi. A real spark plug. I only had a few people jotted down for this one. Uh, you've got Beth Grant, who you mentioned as the Donnie Darko kitty uh, actor. Yes. She plays, you know, the kind of judge from hell at the beauty pageant. It's the same kind of character that she was yeah. in Donnie Darko. Um, very uppity. She plays that part so well. Um, the thing that I recognize her from is the Mindy Project, where she just plays a person that's completely crazy that <laughs> that works in, in that in that workplace. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I thought she deserves a mention. Dean Norris, mo- known to most people as Agent Schrader, Hank from Breaking Bad, as the cop that pulls over yep. the van that has the horn stuck on and he discovers the magazines but fails to see the dead body in the boot of the of the van. So well, he's, um, he's that was very funny. those magazines. Yeah. It's a, it's a good lesson to all would-be criminals. Just keep some yeah. Keep some magazines. smut in your boot uh, and maybe yeah. you'll uh, get away with anything. <laughs> uh, Brian Cranston. I, yeah, I had have... to mention Brian Cranston. It's not like... They don't give him that much to work no, with. No, it's not revolutionary. Like, it's basically just a straight acting. Like it's not like serious drama. No. It's not. There's no comedy to it. I'm currently watching Malcolm in the Middle on Disney Plus with my son, just as something that I can chuck on when we're both going to watch TV together. He doesn't necessarily like it, but he just watches <laughs> it because it's a screen that's moving in front of him. Um, it's colors and sound. Yeah, exactly. But I, you know, means that I get to watch Malcolm in the Middle. Um, so he, at this point, was six years into that series and pre Breaking Bad. So definitely not the Brian Cranston that we know now. And it almost seems like a complete waste of his ability in that sense. Um, but he's in there regardless. He's got the full beard, which I don't know if I've seen him with otherwise. And I don't know. I think that for me, I have to give it to Dean Norris. I think that he's. He's kind of he lights things up when he's on the screen just for that short amount of time. He comes off so slimy as well, like just perfectly slimy, and the way he switches from like just his like creepy little muttering to Greg Kinnear, like oh yeah, I really like this one, and then he's like oh that's a that's a beautiful family you got in there and waving at Tony Collette, like it's just yeah, it's it's unsettling. Mm-hmm. He takes the magazines, he... doesn't he? Like he doesn't he take them and roll off with yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But, but then <laughs> he lets him. Like... He lets them. Yeah, he lets them keep buns and ammo. <laughs> I think he takes the other ones. Yeah, and how quickly his kind of vibe changes when he finds the, you know, yeah. the gay, the gay content. <laughs> and Greg Kinnear's <laughs> no. face, like, oh, what? You're not into that too. <laughs> Greg Kinnear. Yeah. So congrats to Dean Norris. Um, I know he did the shield probably around this time. I feel like that was before Breaking Bad, but I don't yeah, know exactly. Yeah, definitely. So he was becoming a bit more known and he's certainly much more famous now. Last question, is it still a good movie? We've definitely covered that already. Great film. If it's been a while since you've seen this like it had been for us, I definitely recommend going back watching it again because there's a lot to love here and because we've, as we've mentioned, it's not something that is in like the public consciousness and memed and gifed and just like, 
referenced all the time. It's not quoted all the time. There's a lot here that you'll be like, oh, like I totally forgot how good this was or how um, great these performances are or how clever the writing is and how um, this movie is put together. Like we haven't even mentioned the director's for this film being the husband wife duo of Jonathan, Jonathan Dayton, Dayton and Valerie, Valerie Farris. Farris, yeah, which up until this point, completely known for their music videos. Um, mm-hmm. Some, some great biggest... work with, uh, I think they'd worked with the Smashing Pumpkins, Jane's Addiction, like from the mid 80s onwards. They And Korn's Freak on a Leash, like they have done some very well known yep. music videos. And we're talking about, you know, when music videos had these amazing budgets regularly, it wasn't, yes. you know, it was a much more, I guess, respected art form in some ways than it has become now of YouTube lyric videos. And, you know, the only people seeming to have huge budgets on their music videos are hip hop and rap artists. And even then it's not yeah. all of the tracks. Yeah. Like all the Californication um, singles, basically like, the song yeah. Californication, I think Zephyr, like a lot of that Red Hot Chili Peppers stuff and almost any like big rock band from the 90s, like Offspring and like all these these artists that had success with um, on MTV and that kind of thing would have at some point crossed paths with, with this couple. So to see them go from, you know, Smashing Pumpkins 1979 to Little Miss Sunshine, it's a really cool little um, transition there. And I haven't... Uh, dived deep into what they've done since this film, but I assume that they've continued to do a lot, right? Um, a couple of things, a few films. Uh, again, I th- I think um, sort of the bottom fell out of a lot of the uh, music video market, so I don't know if they've worked in that space as much. I don't know if you caught the piece of trivia where um the in the convenience store. The total that he rings up um, yeah. for the order is nineteen seventy nine. I did read about that. Yeah, uh, I've got it a... here. Um, they directed Ruby Sparks, which is a great romantic comedy from twenty twelve, um, which stars Paul Dano as um, ah, an ancient. There you go. As an anxious novelist who creates this fictional character that comes to life, and there's a bit of a, you know. It's kind of like one of those almost sci-fi rom-com deals, like In Time or something like that. Uh, we'll have to check it out. That's a great, great movie. I definitely recommend that. If we did 2010s films on Comedy Rewind, we'd definitely be doing Ruby Sparks. And he, uh, not he, Jonathan and Valerie also directed Living With Yourself, which was that Paul Rudd Netflix series that came out a few years ago which I also have also seen. yeah also really good and what it's another one of those netflix series that you're like ah oh, wish it had more than one season before netflix just pulled the pin but um that's the way they do things over there well, it's a business model yeah <laughs> so yeah that's that's the podcast um definitely check this film out did you have anything to add about little miss sunshine before we wrap it up not particularly. I, again, um, first-time scriptwriter, which was something that sort of struck me, that this was um, the writer's yeah. first uh, script, um, interestingly enough, which I'm guessing it was developed over a very long pr- period of time because it feels pretty polished to me um, without being overindulgent in some parts. Um, 
just a yeah like a like a very solid film and worth going back to watch it hasn't dated itself incredibly you've got some um excellent performances all around and you get to see a few actors um giving some performances especially notably steve carell that they didn't necessarily get a chance to do for quite a long time after this film i i don't know that um steve carell got to do as much dramatic stuff after this up till maybe Foxcatcher. Yeah, was it Dan in the real world? Was that a movie with him as well? Oh, maybe. Dan in real life. Yeah, that was his 2007 comedy drama. I definitely missed that one. That was the one after he was famous that everyone was like, oh, Steve Carell can do something serious. You know, every comedic actor has that film. Mm. And then yeah. Foxcatcher was more like life after The Office. Yeah, it was his one-hour photo. Yeah. <laughs> there is one tweet that I will read as uh, from, from one of our listeners, uh, Mitchie5280 on Twitter, who said, could Bill Murray have made this film better? Bill Murray and Robin Williams were considered for the role of Alan that Alan Arkin took. So that would have been a, a very different direction if it was Robin Williams. Um, but I think that you could probably slot Bill Murray in there and not too much would change. I think he'd probably be a bit more likable, but um, still the same effect as having Alan Arkin there. I think out of those, out of those three choices... I think had I been casting it, I wouldn't have gone with Alan Arkin, but having watched it, I'm glad they went with Alan Arkin. Yeah, I think Bill Murray's, you know, Alan Arkin's a big name, but Bill Murray is like a mega star by comparison. Like he would kind of steal the top billing and everything like that. Yeah, and I can see them in that role, but I'm at the same time, I'm kind of glad they didn't get it. The same way that apparently they didn't even really want Steve Carell because he was a nobody. <laughs> yeah, that changed pretty quickly. All right, well, thank you for listening, everybody. If you haven't already, please subscribe, share the podcast with your friends. You can grab your 8-bit merch over at shop8bit.net and you can support... 8-bit and everything we do over at our Ko-fi page which is ko-fi.com slash we are 8-bit we always love to see new reviews in Apple Podcasts in Spotify in Podchaser whether it's a 5 stars or it's a full actual review telling us what you love about the show Uh, where can people find and support you in the things you do Stephen um you can find my OnlyFans no just kidding um (laughs) player2.net.au is where you will uh, find me most of the time um uh I'm I've been a little bit um less active as uh work and family dominate the majority of my time um but I do have a few things um bubbling away um but yeah check out player2.net.au for a lot of uh gaming coverage very good, very good. And did you drop a Twitter handle there as well? At Gorath44000, uh, G-O-R-A-T-H-44-000. I tweet occasionally. <laughs> you can always use more followers, please. <laughs> yeah, give him a follow. It's the least you can do if you've made it this far through the episode. Uh, and of course, you can catch me on social media at Jono himself. And dear listeners, we want to thank you once again for joining us on Comedy Rewind. Be kind. <laughs>